Well, we find ourselves this morning again in Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, looking again at verses 27 to 30 this morning. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Well, in our time together last week, we came to the very heart of Paul's letter to the Philippians, looking in great detail at just that first phrase, that opening phrase in chapter 1, verse 27, which says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this, as we have said, is the thesis of the book of Philippians. See, after the Apostle Paul celebrates the fellowship that he has and shares with the Philippians in Christ and in the ministry of the gospel of Christ, thanking them and thanking the Lord for their participation in his ministry, and after providing a, a ministry report of sorts, informing uh, the Philippians of his circumstances as he's under house arrest in Rome and waiting for his trial before Nero, after all of that, he comes finally to address the Philippians themselves. And this command to literally carry out their duty as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, the first command in the epistle, acts as a, a rubric, a sort of umbrella under which fall all his following exhortations and instructions that come throughout the remainder of the letter. It's a, it's a sort of introduction. It's all of his admonitions, all of his exhortations are basically the exposition of this command to live their lives in a, worthy, a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's chief aim and concern in writing to the Philippians is not only to thank them for their gift to him, which they brought, a financial gift by Epaphroditus, not only to thank them for that, not only to inform them of how things are going with him, but also to see to it that they are bringing the gospel to bear on every aspect of their lives, that their lives are, as we've said, a gospel-driven life that they are living their lives in a manner that is driven, shaped, and worthy of the gospel. Paul desires that when they face the, the daily issues of life, whether that's how to interact with one another in the relationships that they have with each other, how to carry out the ministry of the gospel in their city, how to minister to one another and alongside one another, and how to deal with persecution and false teaching and temptation and suffering and trials. In all of those issues, Paul's concern is that they are able to take the truths that they have experienced and understood as a result of being saved by the gospel and apply those realities to their lives. He means for the reality of being redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, of being reconciled to the Father and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God to have an effect on how they make decisions and live their lives and navigate life together. And so, we observed last week the supreme importance of this command, signified by the word only at the beginning of verse 27. 
Whatever else you do, Paul tells them, whether I come to you and I can see you again or I remain absent and I only have to hear about it, whatever, whatever happens, don't miss this. Let this one thing be your concern. He also observed the command's distinctive imagery, explaining that it's literally translated, conduct yourselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, which would be significant and have meaning for the Philippians who really gloried in and prized their Roman citizenship and needed to be exhorted to live as citizens of heaven. We observed further that the rule of heavenly citizenship is the gospel itself. That if we desire to order ourselves aright as faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we don't look to a new set of laws or new lists or uh, man-made habits or manufactured patterns of life. No, we look to the gospel itself because the gospel is sufficient to fuel and to regulate all of our efforts in our pursuit of holiness. And then... I sought to model for you how a faithful follower of, of Christ would bring the gospel to bear on 12 particular Christian virtues, 12 specific ways in which the gospel shapes the pursuit of holiness in our daily lives. And I was intentionally broad there, going beyond the scope of what Paul had in mind in this passage and expanding to the breadth of the entire New Testament. And the reason I did that is because this command to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is so broad, it's so all-encompassing that it can really stand as a summary for the entire Christian life. And so I wanted to give you a broad array of how we might apply this uh, to our lives in those 12 separate areas. And you can listen to that message for, for the specifics on those. But when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he had in mind very particular applications of this command applications specifically suited to their present situation. And this morning, we're going to examine three of those particular applications. You could call them three indications of a life worthy of the gospel or three marks of the one conducting himself as a faithful citizen of heaven. And though they come in a form that is very situated and very tailored to the specific challenges that the Philippians were facing... The applications of the command to live in a manner worthy of the gospel have every bit of relevance and every bit of application for us here on the other side of the world 2,000 years later in our own day. These are not only what Paul expects of his dear friends in first century Philippi, but they are what God himself expects of his children in every age. And so studying these will help us know what a gospel-driven life looks like even today. But before Paul starts in on his applications, he inserts a small comment that I want to address briefly. It would have been quite natural for Paul to say, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ, and then to move right on, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together, and so on. But before he begins explaining to the Philippians what it will look like for them to live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel, he says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. And he says things like this elsewhere in the letter. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what's his point here? What is he, what is he after? Well, we've mentioned before that the kind of strong bond and loving affection 
that existed between Paul and the Philippians was unique. The Philippians loved their dear apostle, the one who first spoke the gospel to them and who ushered them, as it were, into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who had become their spiritual father. And so they loved him and they revered him. And besides this, Paul had God-given authority in the church as an apostle of Jesus Christ. They would look to him to answer particular questions and solve disputes as one who speaks for the Lord himself. And so it's easy to imagine that when Paul was around, it was very natural for the Philippians to be on their best behavior, so to speak. And that's not necessarily because they were hypocrites. I don't mean to imply that. But it was just simply because they loved Paul, they revered him, and his being with them reminded them of their commitment to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But now, Paul has been absent for nearly two years. And and more than that, he's been in prison for two years, and he's been absent from Philippi for longer than that. And though he's reasonably certain that he'll come to them again, he has no infallible word from God on the matter, and so he's not sure. But as we learned last week from that word only at the beginning of verse 27, his chief concern is that whether he comes or whether he remains absent, whatever happens to him, the Philippians need be only concerned with living lives that are worthy of the gospel. What he's saying is, your gospel-driven lives cannot depend on my presence. No, a life worthy of the gospel is not lived in the fear of Paul. A life worthy of the gospel is lived in the fear of God. And what I want from you, Philippians, is for you to conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel, whether I come and see it for myself or whether I can only hear of it by report. Your gospel-driven lives must be marked by consistency. And there's the key word, consistency. Paul wants them to bring the gospel to bear on every facet of their lives, not only some of the time, not only when he's around, no, He longs for them to live lives of consistent obedience in the fear of the Lord, the God who never leaves them, who never forsakes them. And we can benefit from this lesson too. As you spend your leisure time in the way you do, or as you watch the movies and the TV that you watch, and you discuss the conversation topics that you discuss, as you speak to your spouse in the way that you do, as you interact with your family and your children and your extended family in the way that you do. The question the Holy Spirit is asking us through His Word is, would you act that same way if John MacArthur were there with you? Would you speak about the same things you speak about in the way that you speak about them if Phil Johnson could hear everything that you said? Would you spend time the way you spend it if another of your elders was along with you? And if so, your life is one of inconsistency. And Paul's point is, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is with you. He does see and He does hear. We all live our entire lives before the open face of the omnipresent God. And our desire to please Him should be all the accountability that we need to live lives that are consistently worthy of the gospel. And so Paul doesn't want the applications that are going to follow to be inconsistent or based on his presence or the absence of his presence. And as we consider these three applications of a life worthy of the gospel, we need to say at the outset 
That Paul and the Holy Spirit, who superintends his pen, are not after lives driven by the gospel some of the time, or when a respected Christian brother or sister is around, but consistently in the fear of God. Well, let's come then to that first application of a life worthy of the gospel. Number one, faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven will be marked by a unified steadfastness, a unified steadfastness. Look again with me at verse 27. Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now, this word to stand firm, it's the normal Greek word for to stand, like just standing up here behind this podium. And that's the most basic sense of the word. But everywhere that Paul uses it, He uses it figuratively not just to mean to stand up, but to stand firm or to stand fast or to stand securely. The word means to be firmly committed in conviction, to be firmly committed in conviction. It was often used in a military context to refer to a faithful soldier who would steadfastly hold his ground regardless of the danger that was coming from the opposition. No matter what would happen, that soldier would stand firm. He was the one who defended his position at all costs, even if it meant sacrificing his very life. And this is very fitting for the Philippians' present situation. It's clear from the context of this passage as well as the rest of the letter that the Philippians were experiencing opposition, which they needed to endure. In just the very next verse, in verse 28, Paul speaks to the Philippians' opponents. That's an explicit reference to their opposition. See, what had happened was that the Lord Jesus had called out these dear believers from the world and to himself. And rather than being devoted citizens of Rome, of the Roman Empire in the colony of Philippi, and dutiful slaves of Lord Caesar, they were now devoted citizens, or at least they were to be devoted citizens of the kingdom of heaven, slaves and saints of the Lord Jesus. And aside from this, aside from being set apart as slaves of Caesar, servants of Christ, citizens of Rome, citizens of heaven, because the gospel of Christ was the rule of their conduct as citizens of heaven, they were called to a manner of life that was entirely distinct from their surrounding pagan neighbors. Indeed, Paul calls them in chapter 2, verses 14 and following, to live as children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom, he says, you appear as lights in the world, as brilliant stars shining in the dark. They were called to such chaste behavior and such purity of lifestyle that there would be an evident difference between them and their unbelieving countrymen. And such a life of holiness always proves to be a challenge and a rebuke to those who do not walk in the same way. The Lord Jesus himself told us in John chapter 3, verse 20, that everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And the words of the Apostle Peter are particularly applicable in this situation. It's clear that the, uh, the churches to whom Peter had written in his first letter were going through similar struggles as the Philippians. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter tells the Christians facing persecution Verse 3 says, For the time, 
is the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In other words, you've spent enough time running after those things before you came to Christ. Those are the things that characterize the Gentiles' lives. And look, verse 4, in all this, they are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. We understand that, don't we? When we've had to take stands against the moral tides of, of our culture, we get those accusations, don't we? Goody two-shoes. Oh, he, she thinks she's so much better than we are. Oh, he can't do that because he's afraid God's going to smite him. And those kinds of mocking and derisive claims. I was watching an interview the other day of a woman who used to be a lesbian English professor in a very liberal university who became a Christian and is now the wife of a, of a Reformed pastor. God's grace is amazing. And she was saying that when she repented and she began to put off her sinful patterns of life, when she started presenting herself in a more feminine way, when she had broken up with her partner, and when she started to put on patterns of righteousness, that her friends in the homosexual community, not because she had gone to them and said anything to them, but they began to be very hurt and very offended. And I was struck by that comment. Why, why were they hurt and offended? She wasn't even saying anything to them. She was simply reforming her own lifestyle according to the dictates of the gospel. Well, because the darkness hates the light. That kind of undeniable holiness in plain sight for sinners to observe is an indictment of their sinful lifestyle, even if it's a silent indictment. And so, since the Philippians had been rescued from the dominion of darkness and had been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, since their citizenship had been transferred from Roman citizenship to heavenly citizenship, they began to face the threat of opposition from their pagan neighbors. And so Paul tells them that they are to stand firm, to not let such persecution cause them to move an inch in their commitment to Christ and His gospel. And a paramount way in which they will conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel as citizens worthy of the gospel is to be good soldiers and stand their ground at all costs. Paul tells them what he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, suffer hardship with me and as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. And we are in no less need of such an admon admonition. The gospel that we believe in the Lord Jesus that we serve are no less subversive and no less antithetical to our world than they were to the Philippians' world. And so as we seek to simply live out our quiet lives in the fear of the Lord as good citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel, the opposition will come. As it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not all who desire to be a super Christian. Not all who become missionaries. 
Not all who go around evangelizing all the time. All who desire to live godly, which should be the ambition of all of us, will be persecuted because the darkness hates the light. And when that persecution comes, when that opposition comes, the question for you is, will you be ready? Will you stand firm? Is the Lord Jesus Christ so worthy? Is He so glorious in your eyes that you will be able to gladly count all things in this life that you hold dear as loss for the sake of knowing Him, serving Him? Or will you fold? Will you yield your ground and be driven not by the gospel, but by the ever-changing moral tides of this corrupt culture? And so prove yourself to not be a soldier of Christ Jesus at all, but to go out from us because you were never really of us. You're all familiar with the story of Martin Luther, the entire world of Christendom standing against him for his teaching the biblical doctrine of salvation that a man is justified by faith alone and not by works and certainly not by indulgences that could be purchased from the Roman Catholic Church. And when he wouldn't kowtow to that kind of corruption, they put him on trial before the Holy Roman Emperor himself at the Diet of Worms and demanded that he recant his teaching or suffer the fate of a, her of a heretic. And I trust you remember Luther's famous words at that trial. He said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Perhaps a, a less known account is the account of the martyrdom of Polycarp, one of the, the disciples of the Apostle John, one of the early church fathers who had served for years as the Bishop of Smyrna. It's recorded that when the Roman soldiers had stormed Polycarp's house to, to seize him, he fed them dinner and asked if he might have an hour to pray, and they allowed that to him. And when they took him to the arena where he stood in the face of wild beasts threatening to tear him to pieces, the Roman proconsul reminded him of his advanced age. He was already in his mid-80s and promised to release him if he would simply swear loyalty to Caesar and revile the name of Jesus Christ. And with the lions to his left and the stake at which he would be burned to his right, he looked at the crowd who longed for his death and said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And Polycarp was burned at the stake that very day. And I ask you this morning, are you ready to stand? Are you committed to suffering hardship in this long line of godly men as good soldiers of Christ Jesus? who when the, the temptation comes to soften on a particular doctrine of Scripture, will look that tempter in the face and say, here I stand. I can do no other. Who when the, the cultural and societal and even political powers of the day demand that you renounce and revile Christ and keep up with the spirit of the times, 
will stand your ground with Polycarp and say, in all the years that I've served him, he's never done me wrong. How could I blaspheme my king, my savior? You may think I'm being dramatic, but in the coming years of our 21st century American culture is going to give us plenty of opportunities to show the world that we love Christ more than all that this life can offer us to show the world that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that we count all things as loss for the sake of the surpassing value of knowing Him because it's going to force us to choose between faithfulness to the Lord and the worldly comforts that we have grown accustomed to enjoying. And I'm sure many of you have heard the, the controversy surrounding Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby is a chain of arts and craft stores that's owned by Christians and Contrary to the mandate of Obamacare, they have uh, refused to provide health insurance for their employees because such health insurance would provide for the subsidy of abortion-causing drugs. And so they've said, this is a violation of our religious liberties. We are not going to comply. And as a result, they filed a lawsuit and everything. It was denied. And the owners now face crippling fines of $1.3 million per day until they comply. And this is, a, this is America. And that was last month. But this month, a Christian pastor was invited by the White House Inauguration Committee to pray at President Obama's second inauguration. And they invited him particularly because of his tireless work to end human trafficking. They like Christianity that seems to be worth something in the, in the positive arena of things. But when somebody listened to a sermon that this man preached almost 20 years ago, when he identified homosexuality as a sin from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there was so much of an uproar that this pastor was forced to withdraw his engagement. And if he didn't, would have been disinvited anyway. Al Moeller, a good friend of our pastors who will be here in January for the Shepherds Conference, or in uh, March rather, for the Shepherds Conference, wrote an article about this whole situation with uh, this pastor and the invitation, in which he identified this as, quote, the clearest evidence of the new moral McCarthyism of our sexually, quote-unquote, tolerant age. Moeller says, during the infamous McCarthy hearings of the 1950s, witnesses would be asked, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And in the version now to be employed by the Presidential Inaugural Committee, the question will be, are you now or have you ever been one who believes that homosexuality or bisexuality or transsexualism is anything less than morally acceptable and worthy of celebration? And my friends, you are going to have a choice. As those kinds of headlines continue to increase, many professing Christians, and if we don't watch, maybe some of you are going to be tempted to soften your positions a little bit well, you know, hey, maybe I'm no embryologist. Maybe life doesn't begin at, except, at conception. Maybe it's a little bit farther down the reproductive process. After all, I mean, how, how can we really tell when a fetus becomes a human being? Well, maybe it's not our place to deny, quote-unquote, civil rights to homosexual couples who want to be married. I mean, sure, I'm against it and everything. I don't agree with it, but we can't legislate morality, can we? And against these fine-sounding arguments and all the various ways in which the world will press us to soften our stance on the Word of God, we need to heed the exhortation of the Apostle Paul to stand firm, to hold our ground as good soldiers of Christ Jesus, to resolve that if persecution comes, if ridicule and accusations of bigotry and homophobia come, if hardship and million-dollar fines come, and even if death itself should come, 
We will stand firm, immovable, as good soldiers of the Lord Jesus, as citizens of heaven, ruled by the gospel of Christ. And so in the face of opposition and persecution, Paul calls his dear friends, the Philippians, to stand firm, to hold their ground against the attacks of an unbelieving world. But there's a second application of a life worthy of the gospel. Faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven will be marked not only by a unified steadfastness, but also by a, a unified aggressiveness, a unified aggressiveness. Look with me at the end of verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here again, Paul uses another military term, striving together. But whereas the emphasis on standing firm was more reactive, or we could say it was more defensive, the imagery of this word is proactive. It's offensive. Good soldiers of Christ Jesus are to stand firm against attacks, but they are also to proactively, offensively strive together for the faith of the gospel. The word in Greek is soon athleto, which is made up of the prefix soon, meaning together with, and the verb athleto, which you can hear, is where we derive our, verb, our word athlete or athletics. This is a picture of the laboring, of the exertion of energy and the discipline that goes along with athletic competition. It's an image of soldiers fighting with all the athletic prowess that they can summon and striving side by side against a common enemy. Now, of course, this striving, this aggressiveness, this military imagery is, is not referring to physical hand-to-hand -hand combat. We are not jihadists. We do not engage in holy war. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so therefore, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Paul, Paul says we are destroying not people, but speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is a spiritual battle. Even though the Philippians were facing strong opposition from their unbelieving neighbors, they were not only to stand firm against attack, but they were to fight back in a spiritual sense against those opposing and hostile worldviews. How? By aggressively proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Paul is calling them to evangelism, to fulfill their mission. The Philippians were not simply to endure the assault of truth for, from their surrounding culture. They were to confront the leading cultural ideologies of their day with the truth of Jesus Christ. They were not only to use the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy, they were to draw their sword, the word of God. And like an athlete who leaves everything that he's got on the field, they were to spend themselves proclaiming the message of the gospel, that message that was the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, whether Jew or Greek or Roman or American. And so you see, 
Friends, it's not enough for us to simply cross the finish line. It's not enough for us to simply endure attacks against the truth. Yes, it's extremely important that we stand firm, that we don't give in to the prevailing ideologies of the day, and that we come to the finish line as ones who, are, who have been unmoved and don't make shipwreck of faith. But we must also strive together for the faith of the gospel by preaching that gospel to a world that needs it and yet hates it at the same time. The good soldier of Christ Jesus, the faithful citizen of the kingdom of heaven, living worthily of the gospel of Christ, loves to proclaim that good news by which he was saved. Because we want them, we want others to love and to know and enjoy the God who has satisfied us in the depths of our souls. We want that for others because that's what love and compassion dictate. And we love to proclaim this gospel because God is worthy of such praise and honor and glory that would come from these unbelievers. Your unbelieving neighbors owe Christ worship and he deserves to have it. And he doesn't have it. And so we preach the gospel so we do whatever we can to see that he gets it. Because we love when Christ is worshipped. We love when God is honored. It's our greatest joy. It's the bottom of our affections to, to have Christ magnified. And so we gladly lay down our lives, strive together with athletic strength as much as we can muster, determination, strategy, and planning to preach this gospel. And as you think strategically, friends, about how you're going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in 2013, Give some time to thinking about how you will be intentional about sharing the gospel with people, whether that means attending a local outreach ministry or setting up a time to meet with a neighbor for coffee or for even spending some time getting equipped in how to evangelize biblically. Maybe for you, striving together for the faith of the gospel is taking some time to set aside time to learn about how to preach the gospel faithfully and, in, and winsomely and effectively in a short period of time. Whatever it is, you need to set your hand to living out a, a gospel-driven aggressiveness in 2013. You say, hey, that's going to take a lot of preparation. Yeah, it will. It will take a lot of time. Yes, you will need to make time in your schedule. But think about, again, that Greek word for striving, athleto, athletics. Think about an athlete who's going to run the 100-meter sprint in the Olympics. That race lasts no longer than 15 seconds if it's a bad day for people. Once every four years. But that athlete who is dedicated to winning the prize sets aside months and sometimes years of training so that everything in his life, from his diet to his leisure activities to his exercise regimen, everything is governed by those 10 to 15 seconds. And Paul is telling the Philippians that everything in their lives is to be governed and regulated by the gospel. And so that will result in the kind of athletic, disciplined effort to see the gospel advance, even in a world hostile to Christ and the truth that he proclaims. But notice, it's not only a steadfastness to which the Apostle Paul calls the Philippians. It's not only a, a, an aggressiveness for the faith of the gospel that marks a faithful citizen, but a unified steadfastness and a unified aggressiveness. In the span of what doesn't even amount to a single complete sentence, Paul 
emphasizes the importance of unity three times. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this makes all the sense in the world for a church who is enduring much opposition. The strength of an army is in the unity of its soldiers. In order to successfully withstand opposition and strive against it, the company of soldiers must strive together with one spirit and with one mind. If the various soldiers were all trying to do their own thing, defeat would be certain. But a well-trained army presents a unified front and fights as a single unit as if they were one man. And Paul knew about the building tensions between certain members of the church at Philippi, not the least of which, of course, were the two ladies that are mentioned by name in chapter 4. And Paul knew that if the Philippians were going to be successful in ministering this gospel to a hostile world, it was absolutely essential that they be unified at home. The phrase with one mind is literally translated with one soul. It's the word psuche, where we get psychology, one soul. What a vivid illustration of the profound importance of the unity among believers, as if we, as if we shared the same mind, as if we shared the same soul. Our hearts beat together because we love the Savior, the common Savior. This kind of language is reminiscent of what was spoken about the early church at Pentecost in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Luke tells us the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to themselves, but all were common property among them. They would sell whatever they needed. If, if a need arose, unity among the, this early church, this early Pentecost congregation, unity among them meant to be so united, so committed to one another, that if it meant that it was necessary to sell everything that they had to support their believing friends, members of their local church, well, they would do it. And Paul is not asking the Philippians to sell everything they have and give to each other. He's simply asking them to be united, to be of one mind, of one purpose, striving together. As we said last week, the gospel unites those who believe the Lord Jesus to Him by faith. But that means that the gospel unites all those who believe in Jesus and are thus united to Him by faith with everybody else who's united to Him by faith. I love what Pastor John says. He says, you were not saved merely to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't have just a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have a corporate relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is so right on because of the objective unity that the gospel has accomplished among all true believers in Christ. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel means walking in unity with each other. It means a commitment to being of one mind with those who love and worship the same Lord that you do. And this is especially true of the relationships that exist here in the same church. I mean, we're talking about something that unites all believers throughout the world so that you can show up at a church across the world and have fellowship and objective unity with somebody. But especially should that be the case here with people under the same church, united under a common commitment to, to the, the Scriptures, a united doctrinal statement, united uh, elder board leadership. It should be among our top priorities to ensure that we are all walking in unity together, presenting a, a united front to our community that is lost 
and that we need to seek to win by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so endeavor to be unified with your brothers and sisters. If there is something that you know of that is, is that wedge, you know it's just, you know, there's ice there. There's, there's a, a separation between you and, you, you know, there's that, that feeling of tension. Commit yourself to going to that person and working it out. Get down, open the Bible, pray, and, and commit to loving each other as brothers and sisters and being unified so that you can strive together with one purpose, united with one spirit, with one mind, one soul. Absolutely essential if we're going to have any effect to be fruitful for the Lord Jesus Christ in our community. But aside from relational unity, just briefly, the implication of a unified steadfastness and a unified aggressiveness is that nobody in the body is accepted from doing all that they can in order to keep the faith and advance the gospel. You see, if Paul is calling the Philippians to strive together and with one mind, that means the responsibility for defending the faith on the one hand and preaching the gospel, actively seeking to propagate the gospel on the other, it doesn't belong to an elite class of super spiritual, super Christians. No army is made up of generals alone, but every single soldier matters and has a strategic part to play. And so every one of you has the responsibility and the privilege, the joy, of taking this gospel to the world because we are all to be striving together. Well, then we have seen that faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven will be marked by a unified steadfastness. We've seen that they'll be marked by a unified aggressiveness. Finally, we come to Paul's third application of a life worthy of the gospel. Number three, faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven will be marked by a resolute fearlessness, a resolute fearlessness. Look with me at verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them and of salvation for you, and that too from God. The citizen conducting himself in a manner worthy of the gospel will not be alarmed in any way by his opponents in the midst of struggle and in opposition but will remain confident in the strength and the protection of his king. And Paul continues to employ this military imagery. The word alarmed means to be frightened, terrified, or intimidated. And it was used in extra-biblical Greek literature to describe horses that were startled or frightened on the battlefield. You can imagine a soldier charging into the enemy on horseback into the battlefield, only to have the horse spooked by something, maybe a, a snake, and to stop short, kick up its, its front legs and throw its rider, which would result in serious injury. One of the, uh, one of the most famous uh, Greek historians and writers, Plutarch, uh, used this very word in a story uh, about a Roman soldier who was thrown from his horse because of just such a, a frightening, and that he died in the midst of battle. Now, given the opposition the Philippians were facing, it's not difficult to understand why they might be uh, needing to be exhorted to a resolute fearlessness. Acts 16 records for us that, that the Philippians, those who were at the, 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 the church in Philippi when it was founded, saw Paul come and be beaten and imprisoned. They saw his trials. They knew of, they heard the reports of his trials from his missionary journeys. And of course, they knew about the, his, the imprisonment he was facing right at this very moment in Rome 
waiting for two years, waiting to see if, he would, if it would end in his execution. So the Philippians knew that the Romans could come for them at any moment. But Paul is telling them that a good soldier of Christ, a worthy citizen of the kingdom of heaven, is in no way frightened by his adversaries. That phrase, in no way, is very emphatic in the Greek text. Paul is saying that the Philippians have no reason to be frightened at any point in anything. One paraphrase of the Scriptures puts it like this, meeting your opponents without so much as a tremor. No matter how powerful the opposition is, nothing should shake the resolve of the citizen of heaven. Why? Why? Because the king of heaven remains on his throne and he is infinitely more powerful than any opposing force could ever dream to be. This is the very thing that Jesus said as he commissioned his disciples to preach the gospel to all creation and make disciples of all the nations. In Matthew 28, as Jesus gives the national church its marching orders, the first thing he said, Matthew 28, 18, was that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And the very last thing that he said was, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There is nothing in this entire universe that I do not carefully and meticulously control. And I myself, Jesus says, will be with you every step of the way. So go. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Preach this gospel. Fulfill your mission. Robert Murray McShane, that, that great 19th century Scottish preacher, wrote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. End quote. See, all authority has been given to him. He is with us even to the end of the age. And so we need, we need not fear a million enemies, no matter where following him might lead us. And that's the application of this principle for us this morning. I think the main way that we apply this admonition to, to be resolutely fearless is to be willing to lay down our lives in the service of the gospel, no matter what the cost. Wherever Christ is going to lead us, no matter how risky, no matter how difficult, no matter how big the sacrifice, no matter how uncomfortable, we follow him down that path obediently and joyfully with all the courage of one who serves the sovereign God of the universe. The one who conducts himself as a citizen worthy of the gospel goes where it's hard to go, lives where it's hard to live, performs the services and the ministries that it's hard to perform. Now that might mean that you become a missionary to, the, to a closed country in the 1040 window. Or it might mean that you go down to Skid Row and preach the gospel to homeless people. Or it could mean something as, as simple as gently and reverently answering your coworker who consistently mocks Christ and Christianity. It might mean inviting your neighbors over for dinner, even though you haven't done it for such a while, and even though you're embarrassed that you haven't done it for such a while, but inviting them over for dinner and giving, them, giving yourself an opportunity to get to know them and seeking an opportunity in which you might proclaim the gospel to them. It might mean finally sharing the gospel with that friend or family member whose response you've been dreading. I wonder what they're going to think of me after I tell them this. Whatever it is, we can be free to speak the gospel with confidence and with joy in no way 
alarmed by our opponents. Let's turn to a couple of other scripture passages just to add fuel to the fire of this fearlessness. Turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Yahweh has just taken Moses to heaven, and he's now charging Joshua as he leads the Israelites into the promised land. And in verse 5, Yahweh tells Joshua that he should in no way be alarmed by his opponents. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their their fathers to give them. And skip to verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. That applies to immediately to Israel, to Joshua and Israel in their context, as they actually do fight battles to secure their promised land. But that is the God whose character never changes, who is no less committed to us than to Moses and Israel, who is no less with us and has not promised to be less with us than he has promised to Joshua there. Turn to Isaiah chapter 41. The prophet has spent 39 chapters rebuking Israel and announcing judgment and condemnation for their wickedness. But in chapter 40, he turns to prophesy restoration and blessing that will come after Israel's chastisement has been completed. And in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 5 to 16, Yahweh himself encourages the soldiers of Israel, reminding them that when they're unified, when they're steadfast and aggressive, they ought also to be fearless Let's start in verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. See, everybody is working together, they're striving together. There's a unity. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am Yahweh, your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. And I love this. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob. He's acknowledging that you've got nothing to offer. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you. 
declares Yahweh, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in Yahweh. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. You can't lose. And again, yes, that is, that is speaking of Israel's you know, restoration and their conquest that comes in the millennial kingdom and the eschaton, indeed. But it does not apply any less to the church. Sure, we might not have a physical kingdom here on this earth right now, but we are members of a spiritual kingdom sent on a spiritual mission, and we are promised that this Yahweh, our God, this Holy One of Israel, will go with us. That wonderful hymn, one of my favorite hymns, How Firm a Foundation, is based on this text, chapter 41, verse 10, and it says, Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I will strengthen thee and help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. And if you'll permit me, I want to read more of that hymn. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, when your pathways go through fiery trials, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. How glorious does that, that hymn writer capture the spirit of Yahweh speaking to his people to go and be courageous, to, to fulfill our mission with a resolute fearlessness, in no way alarmed by any opponents. And finally turn to Luke chapter 21. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 21, verse 16, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair on your head shall perish. They'll put some of you to death. And not a hair on your head will perish. You see, the very worst that they can do to you is kill you. The very worst that they can do to you is chase you to heaven. But for you, the one for whom to die is gain, the one for whom to depart and be with Christ is very much better. Philippians 1.23, that is no concern at all. Do you see how free we can be? Do you see how useful you can become in the kingdom? when you are fearless in the face of opposition because your God is sovereign and with you. What a fearless people we should be. What a fearless people we should be. Father, make us fearless. And that kind of resolute fearlessness in the face of persecution and opposition is so evidently supernatural, so evidently a work of the Spirit of God in those who are His that it can be said to be a plain indication of who is saved and who is lost. Look at verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them and of salvation for you, and that too from God. 
You see, that kind of unshakable confidence in the sovereignty and the goodness of God that causes one to gladly and willingly endure suffering for the cause of Christ is so beyond anything that is native to our human character that Paul says you can tell who the friends of God are and who the enemies of God are by looking at that. People who suffer persecution and opposition as a result of their commitment to Christ but who bear up under it joyfully and without complaint because the bottom of their joy is in the magnification of Christ. They're not native to this fallen world. They've been born from above. They've been given a new nature. For them, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For them, Christ is more satisfying than pleasant circumstances, more satisfying than problem-free lives or unlimited leisure time. And they make Christ look great. Guys, go out and suffer for the gospel because you're taking that gospel boldly wherever you go, that people are going to hate it because darkness hates the light. Go and be bold because your God is with you. And he's not only with you, but he grants to you those trials that come. He ordains them for your benefit. And that'll be for next time, verse 29. But until then, commit to praying for your brothers and sisters in grace life and commit to praying for yourselves that we would all conduct ourselves in a manner worthy, conduct ourselves as citizens whose lives are worthy of the gospel of Christ, that we would be consistently marked by a unified steadfastness, by a unified aggressiveness, and by a resolute fearlessness. Start praying with me right now. Father, this is what we ask for. We ask for a unified steadfastness, a unified aggressiveness, and a resolute fearlessness. Cause us to be bold to go where you would have us to go. Get us out of our comfort zone. Have us go and suffer reproach outside the camp just as Jesus suffered outside the camp. Here we have no lasting city but we are seeking a city which is to come. We store up treasure not on earth where moth and rust can destroy, thieves break in and steal. We, we want to we set up treasure, lay up treasure in heaven where it's imperishable. We want the smile of your countenance. We want the favor of our God. Show thy face, the other hymn says, and all is bright. Equip us, strengthen us, dear Holy Spirit, to go out in, in the power that you supply so that in everything the Lord Jesus Christ may be honored to the glory of God the Father. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.